This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 116. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 116 you're listening to. It is brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Welcome back to another show. Uh, rainy day here in the Bay Area. They are telling us on the news that the drought that we have been going through in California is essentially over, with the exception of a few pockets of California. We have had an immense amount of rain and man, that cliche, when it rains, it pours is holding true for us. Lots of rain. Yeah. So when it rains uh, here at our house, I have to go out and make sure that all the downspouts are working properly. I have to uh, make sure that the water that comes pouring down from a hill behind our house is routed properly. Otherwise, my mix and mastering room here could potentially take on water if we're not careful So and vigilant. Yeah, water. Dangerous. Dangerous. I uh, got a great guest on today. I have Mr. Mark Kilborn on today. Mark and I have been talking over Facebook. I seem to develop these uh, friends over Facebook who send me messages, who send me uh, recommendations of people to interview uh, over the course of time. And Mark is one of those people. So Mark and I have actually been talking for about a year, year and a half, I think. And he came, he lives in Madison, Wisconsin with his wife and kids. And he flew out to San Francisco for the Game Developers Conference recently. And we sat down in a Starbucks in downtown San Francisco and had a good chat. Mark is in the world of game sound. He's a sound designer, a mixer, and an implementer for some pretty big titles. Uh, he serves as uh, the principal audio designer for the Call of Duty series. Uh, he's uh, I'm going to just read off some of these games that he's worked on. And, you know, those of you who play games are probably going to recognize these. And some of you who don't play games are probably still going to recognize a lot of these because you see commercials for them all the time. Call of Duty. Generally, there's, you know, all kinds of Call of Duties. There's Black Ops 3, there's Modern Warfare Remastered, all kinds of those. Which, uh, let's see, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare has been nominated for BAFTA AIAS Awards for Sound, uh, which is actually won. Gang Sound Design and Audio of the Year Awards. And he's worked on Borderlands, Brothers in Arms, Samba de Amigo, uh, Project Gotham Racing, Boom Boom Rocket, Tony Hawk's Project 8, and Bionicle Heroes. So yeah, so our interview, it's a, at a Starbucks, little noisy, but we were trying to find a place in downtown San Francisco where we could meet, and I thought the coffee shop was, you know, the perfect place to go, because you know me, I love coffee. So yeah, Mark Kilborn coming up. Let's talk about studio security. Yeah, security cameras. You know, I'm fascinated by all the different products, the off-the-shelf products that you can buy out there that uh, you can use for home security and studio security as well. There's a lot of products that you can monitor over the internet, uh, different prices. I think there's like uh, the Arlo is something that uh, I've checked out. Uh, it's, you know, it's cool, but you know, it's a chunk of dough. And so I was thinking about, I was sitting there brainstorming with my kids about like, what could we use for really, you know, inexpensive cameras? And I thought, you know, we have all of these old cell phones sitting around. I mean, I think in a drawer in our family, we probably have, I'm going to say minimum six, at least six decent cell phones that have cameras. And I thought there's got to be a way, there's got to be an app. So, you know, no doubt I Googled it and I came up with this. I did a, I, 
had some trial and error with a couple of them, but what I came across last night actually was a thing called Mini Thing, and what it allows you to do, and that's spelled M-A-N-Y-T-H-I-N-G. You can hear me typing. I'm going over there, minithing.com. It's an app for Google phones or Android phones and uh, iOS for Apple phones. So the whole concept is you're turning your old smartphone into a video monitoring camera. And the way it works is, is you take the old phone, you install the mini thing app, you create an account, and then you set it up somewhere. Obviously, you have to have continuous power to it. And then you can monitor it not only from your phone, your main phone, remotely, and you can have two-way conversations. So if you set it up in a place where you need to have a two-way conversation with somebody who's on camera, you can do that. But it's really great because it just takes phones that you already spent this money on and that are sitting around doing nothing and allows you to turn them into security cameras that you can remotely monitor from your phone, from a browser. And yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's for, well, no, it's not free. Sorry. Let me be clear about that. I thought it was free at first. There's a free trial. Oh, no, there is a free plan. One camera, live streaming, motion alerts, and detection zones. Okay. So that is true. But then after, I think, a few days, they uh, try to charge you some stuff. So, And then from the free plan, you can go to one, two, and up to five cameras, and they allow you to have uh, pay for a monthly cloud recording plan. So you can have a two-day plan, a seven-day plan, or a 30-day plan. So this is kind of cool. This is something that uh, I'm super uh, interested in. So we, we did a, a test. We've set up a couple phones in the front of the house overlooking the driveway and the front lawn. And yeah, kind of interesting, interesting concept. So if you're looking for something, a low cost thing for your situation, whether it's for your home or for your studio or whatever it is, storage space with gear in it, this is an economical way to go. Even if you just got the free thing, it would be just one camera, live streaming, motion alerts, etc. for free. So that's kind of cool, but you don't get any cloud recording. The cloud recording thing is cool because obviously that helps you uh, capture something in the event that there's a theft and you want to take that to the police and say, this is this is what I got for you. So yeah, ManyThing. Check it out, ManyThing.com. I thought that was interesting. So always trying to bring you little tidbits of things that I think are going to help you uh, that are not horribly expensive. And I thought this was a good idea for that. So check it out. So that's it. I think we should get on with the show. So let's jump into it. Mark Kilborn here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is the first time I've done an interview in a coffee shop, much less a Starbucks. But here we are. As I always say, coffee is the thing that brings people together and gets people to open up. Of course, you're having a tea, but that still counts. Is there caffeine in there? There is caffeine. Uh, Yes, there is. Okay. So we're in San Francisco. We're in downtown San Francisco, and you're here in town for the Game Developers Conference. Tell me a little bit about about your background as far as gaming and audio is concerned and why you come to the Developers Conference. So I decided I wanted to do this when I was a little kid. Um, Went to school at full sale around early 2000s. I graduated 2004. Uh, first job was at a post-production studio in Detroit, strangely enough. I moved there briefly after school, and then I came back to Texas, which is where I had lived prior. Um, and I discovered that a friend who was in a band I had been playing shows with when I was younger was doing sound for games. And I told him what I was trying to achieve, that I wanted to get into game sound professionally. And eventually he called me one day and said, hey, I need an extra pair of hands on this Tony Hawk game. Do you want to help me out? So I instantly quit my job at a post studio and went to work with him. 
Um, so that's how I got into games. I came to Game Developers Conference in 2006 for the first time. Outside of E3, it's the biggest trade show for our industry, but it's really aimed at the developers rather than the press, whereas E3 is about showing off new games to press and fans. GDC is aimed at developers, so we get to see new tools and technologies, and we get to go to talks and learn from each other. And I think last year they had around 70,000 people in town for this. It's a pretty tremendous event. Um, and there's a ton of audio people here as well, so we... Uh, we spend the week drinking and hanging out and talking <laughs> about stuff, and it's a lot of fun. And it's educational. You work for a particular company? Yes, I work for Activision. And what is your job there? My title now is audio principal. Until late last year, I was an audio director, and I kind of shifted roles because I wanted to spend more time with my kids, frankly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I work on the Call of Duty series. I've worked on almost every game since Black Ops 1 in varying capacities. On some games, we're assisting with certain sections of the game. On some games, I was directing certain pieces of it, the audio for certain pieces of it. The Zombies campaign for Advanced Warfare in 2014 was something I did. I was the audio director for the Modern Warfare Remastered game that came out late last year. And then in other games, I was, you know, I was directing a small team that was contributing to a section of the game. But now, as an audio principal, I'm basically back to being a sound engineer. Although they sometimes give me, they give me ownership of smaller sections of things. So I'm working on a section for an upcoming game with one guy working with me. But it's nice, it's less responsibility. And I, I work from home now, I get to move home. I have one-year-old twins, so it's nice to be able to be in my studio at home. And if my wife needs help for 30 minutes, I can run downstairs and help out and then get back to work. So it's been a, it's a really nice setup. I'm curious how the day-to-day -day works for you. Tell me more about the functionality of it all for you. Uh, it's definitely different compared to doing post-production or music in terms of day-to-day -day flow. You know, we're at least compared to post, I haven't done music work professionally. I've only done it as a, you know, being in a band. But do, compared to doing post-production professionally, we would have projects that would come in that would be over in a day or two. And now I'm on a project for, you know, 12 months, maybe longer. So we, we tend to break up our work into sprints of like a month or two. And we're trying to complete small sections of the game. And we're, we may not even be completing them. We may be just trying to get them up to a certain level of quality. And then we'll go work on another section of the game. Then we'll come back and push things further. So it's, it's a little strange. You don't get that sense of quick accomplishment that you get with smaller projects. Um, and it can actually become a bit of a slog when you're, you know, six months from shipping and <laughs> you feel like you haven't actually completed anything in half a year. And But in terms of, you know, what I do day to day, it's a combination of, it's, it's a lot of different things. It really depends on where where the area that I'm responsible for is at any given point. I may be you know, I have days where I sit there and make sounds all day in my DAW. I have days where I'm outside recording sound effects. I have days where I'm scripting. You know, we have a scripting language for our engine that's very similar to C, the programming language. And I'll spend two days or three days just hooking sounds up in the game engine. The thing, the engine that inside a game that processes it all within a gaming console, I just don't understand how that works. I don't understand how... You take all these different components, toss them into this quote-unquote engine. Can you decipher that for, for those of us who are more musically inclined? Sure. I've tried to explain this for years, and I stumbled upon a perfect analogy one day with, a, uh, with another engineer I know who does music stuff. The best way to, and this is simplifying it a bit, <clears throat> but the best way I've found to explain this 
is imagine you have a giant sampler like Contact. You, we've, I, I, it's hard for me to even say how much RAM we have now that we've moved to the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. We're not thinking about RAM anymore because the consoles have 8 gigs. But imagine you've got like a gig of RAM, maybe a little bit more. And what you do is you make a bunch of sounds and you load them into this sampler. And then you teach the game when to play each of the individual sounds out of the sampler. And when it plays them, it can pitch them up and down. It can modulate the volume. It can do a lot of different things. And then it plays those samples into a 64-channel mixer, which we have as part of our game engine. Uh, each channel has EQ filtering volume control. And then those sounds get bussed through buses, and then they go out of master. So effectively, what we're doing is we're loading a bunch of sounds into a sampler. We're telling the game, these are the circumstances in which you play them. And this is what you do with the mixer when you play them. So it'll pan them correctly and surround, and it'll move the faders up and down. And it's all based on data that's coming from the game. So when the game is playing, the audio engine is getting this huge spew of data from the game. Like, here's where the player is in the 3D world. And then this door just slammed shut, and here's where that is. And it'll look and say, hey, the distance to that sound is X. So based on that, I'm going to pull the fader down this much. And hey, there's a wall in between it, so I'm going to apply this low-pass filter to it. So we're kind of teaching a game how to mix itself and how to trigger all the sounds as it plays. Does that make a little more sense? It does make a lot of sense. And Camden Stoddard was on the show as a guest uh, in a previous episode, and so we got a little bit of a taste of that from him. What I'm to understand is, is that beyond getting all the audio pieces together, uh, there's actually an art to even... Uh, how to implement those sounds within this these quote-unquote engines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way you implement determines how the sound is mixed when it's played back. So there's a, there's a huge creative piece there. There's also, you know, we want to, especially in Call of Duty, for example, we have, we have players firing guns constantly because it's a shooting game. You know, if we put one single gunshot on a player's gun, they're going to hear the same shot over and over again. So we break them up into multiple different layers. There's the transient, there's the body of the shot, there's the tail, there's the mechanical sound of the gun moving. There may be a shell ejection sound, a shell hitting the uh, surface material below them, which changes based on what they're standing on. So we have to create all these elements and put them all in together that all get triggered every time the shot gets fired. And then, you know, for each one of those elements, there may be 10 variations, right? Those are the two areas where the implementation really comes into play, at least with sound effects. Music's another thing entirely, but you know you have to create these little pools of sound that can be dynamically stacked together and played that sound interesting and sound different every time the player fires them or, or, or triggers them or whatever the sound is. You know, can falling off of a table is the same thing. So what about, <coughs> excuse me, what about the pressure of getting the job done versus doing a uh, putting the quality into it because I mean we're talking about I mean if there was an audio profession that exemplified the term minutia oh yeah this would be it <laughs> in my opinion absolutely so there how are. do you how do you manage the pressure of you know you I know that you have these milestones that you got to meet so how does that come into play it's tough, man. Sometimes it is really tough and we work a lot of long hours sometimes. You know, I live in Microsoft Excel. I have everything plotted out in a spreadsheet. I know every gun in the game. I know every layer of every gun. I know every physics object, every random television in a corner that you can blow up. We have lists of everything and we schedule the stuff out and we build it piece by piece. And, you know, one thing that I've found helps us is we, uh, I'm stealing a term from our art department, but they have this concept called a beautiful corner. And what they do with that is they 
take a small section of the game and they get that to a finished state of quality. Like if you walk to that one area of that one mission of the game and look at it, it looks done. So what we'll often do earlier on in the project with audio is we'll get one or two guns completely done. We'll get a grenade explosion done. We'll get a handful of sounds done, some fully movement sounds done so that we have a clear target of this is what this game is gonna sound like when it's finished, as long as you're in this one place firing this one particular gun, doing this one particular thing. And then we use that as our reference point for building the rest of it, you know, in terms of quality, but also in terms of time. We track how long does it take to build that section of the game. Then we look at the rest of the game and kind of schedule it out and see if we can get it done in the amount of time we have left, which sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can if we work a little harder. And so we put in the extra hours and we get it done. It's, uh, I mean, it also depends on, you know, how hard are you willing to push? And we're, a lot of us in the COD world are very, we're very competitive. We want it to sound great. And we just were willing to put a lot of effort in. Because these are big titles you're talking yes. about. I mean, I'm, I don't really play all that much in, in terms of games here and there with my kids. I've mentioned on the show before, Star Wars Battlefront is, you know, that's one game I enjoy playing. But that's really about it. But I know those other titles because I hear about them all the time. Yeah, each year's game has got a campaign, which is a story mode that's four to seven hours in length. It's got a uh, multiplayer mode that has a dozen or more multiplayer maps where people can run around and shoot each other with various game modes. Some years, although I guess the last couple of years we've had this, we have a zombies mode where you've got new maps with these zombie creatures that you're fighting. And, you know, often those have a story to go along with it. And we have people we cast for that. So yeah, they're, they're really big games. So in terms of the number of people involved in this, just on the audio side, at least at Activision, roughly, what would you say? Uh, it varies by project, but I would say it's generally around 15 to 20 people internally working on sound design and hookup. Then beyond that, you've got, you know, we have outsource, we have external studios that handle our voice recording. We have a composer. We have a talent management department that handles casting and contracts. Also, I mean, you can kind of get, you know, one or two degrees removed from audio, but uh, internally, we usually have 15 to 20 people working on just sound for the game, not counting our external people. Which, I guess, for the workload that you're describing, seems kind of small. It it sometimes is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, again, it depends on it depends on how complicated we go in a given year. Some of the games are a little more complicated than others in terms of how we're building assets for them. But yeah, some years it's a little tight, and we just we, you know, we pull together and we get through it. This is a salaried job for you, I take it. Yes. Um, a lot of us are salaried. Uh, you know, obviously the external people we contract are not. They're, uh, they're paid however they're paid. I don't even know. I don't manage that. But uh, yeah, for most of us internal, it's salary. And you have health insurance. Obviously, it's like a regular, it's a day gig. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a full-time job. with full benefits, salary. But it's hard to get into, isn't it? It is hard to get into. We're having this problem in the game industry where we're trying to get games done with less resources, but we're trying to hit a bigger scope, right? And what a lot of people don't consider when they look at video games is the price of a video game has not changed much in the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, when I was, when I was you know, eight years old and my dad bought me a Nintendo game, that was 50 bucks in 1985 or 88, or I guess it was 88 when I was eight. <clears throat> and now today a video game is $60. So you think about it, the price of a video game has increased $10 in 30 years, but we're, you know, we're many console generations past the amount of art, the amount of audio, the amount of animation, 
the, the requirements have gone way through the roof. The scope of these games has gotten massive. So we're now in a position where we have to get a lot done without growing our budget that much. And we have to sell a lot of copies of these games. So what that's created is that's created a situation where we really need to have very senior experienced people working on the games. And in the last, I'd say five or six years, entry level, lower level opportunities for people to get into game audio and into other fields have been drying up to some degree. I mean, there are still opportunities out there, but it's nowhere near as open as it was, you know, 13, 14 years ago when I got in. And even then it wasn't as open as it's been in the past. And then you pair that with, there's a lot of schools cranking out audio students, which I'm sure everybody's seeing in all corners of the audio industry. And there's, everybody wants to do, well, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people want to do game sound. And we're just, we're flooded with entry-level applicants and there's not a lot of jobs. It's kind of a tough market at the moment. Um, and I don't want to be all doom and gloom. I mean, there's room for people that are genuinely talented and really work, willing to work hard, but it is not an easy job to get into. Is there a, uh, any sense of mentorship or kind of bringing people up from the bottom? Is there, or was uh, in, in a large way in the music industry in the past? So when there were entry-level opportunities at a lot of studios, there was a lot more room for that. You know, Microsoft, for example, used to have, or they still have a big sound department, but they used to have a lot of entry-level uh, opportunities for people to get in and then that, that that's where the mentorship would happen they would grow up through that and they're not doing that as much anymore as a result no there's not a lot of room for mentorship and we're as a as an industry well game audio we're trying to figure that out and we're kind of going through some experiments now because a lot of people in our field that are more senior level agree that this is a problem we don't know how to train these young people up and i actually forgive me for plugging something but just with a group of us, we just started an organization called the Audio Mentoring Project that launched last week. And the idea is we have a handful of experts from various game companies that work in audio in fields like voiceover, music, sound design, implementation. And we're taking applications for people to be mentored remotely over the internet. And we're, we're basically trying to grow up the next generation of audio people because we know they can't get jobs with us. So we're giving them access to us in another way. So we've got uh, we've got the audio director of Dice who worked on Battle uh, Battlefront One and Two. He just joined up. I'm in there. Damian Kaspauer, who's a uh, implementation expert, he's beyond an expert. He's like the wise old man on the mountain of game audio implementation. He works at a uh, PopCap Games on like Plants vs Zombies. Plants vs Zombies. Okay, so I play Plants vs Zombies. Yeah. So we've got we got a bunch of people like that. We've got Becky Allen from uh, PopCap as well, and we're just we're going through these like three to six month cycles with with these uh, students and we're gonna mentor them and kind of, you know, help them develop their skills by, you know, we're, we're basically giving them work to do. We're saying, here are these unpaid projects you're gonna do for us. They're not gonna ship or anything. We're not making money off it, but you're gonna do this project. We're gonna give you feedback. We're gonna teach you everything we can with the goal of trying to raise up some new talent because there's not a lot of places for them to go to get that experience. And Where we, do the, so tell me the name of the organization again. Uh, it's called the Audio Mentoring Project and the website is audiomentoring.com. Uh, so, yeah, we're hoping this will help address the knowledge gap because yeah, we see it. And I know you guys see it in music as well when there aren't a lot of studios for people to go work at and come up in. And this is we're hoping this will be a solution. I don't know if this is the magic solution, but we're hoping it'll help. It would seem that it is a bottleneck to game sound because, I mean, people move up and you need highly trained people to move back in. So this seems like a good solution to what is 
a significant problem, I would say. Oh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, when we when we go to hire, we get flooded with applications, and the majority of them are below par. They're below what we need, and you know, everybody is seeing this. I hear this constantly talking with people at other studios that, yeah, we're getting, you know, we'll post we'll post a job listing, we'll get 200 applicants, and maybe one or two of them will be at the level we would consider to hire, and we won't we want to fix that. Is it really key for an applicant to have training in game sound per se, or can somebody from music or post-production easily step into a job like that and be in, and be taught what it is the requirements are because of their strength and audio knowledge? It depends. It depends on how flexible they are with learning. You know, the implementation piece of it is different, right? You know, when you're building something for linear media, you're building it to picture. When you're building for us, you have to think about how the sounds are going to be broken down and exported out of your DAW and reassembled in the game engine. And often, you know, we don't, I shouldn't say we don't, there are some studios that have dedicated implementation people, but the majority of us don't. So, you know, we need an audio engineer who can not only fire up Pro Tools or Reaper or whatever and make all these sounds and export them correctly, but also go into a tool like Wise or go into a level editor and start putting sounds in the game and hooking it all up. And, you know, we've, in terms of raw sound design skill, yes, somebody from linear post could certainly come over or from music could come over and probably do the job. The question is, can they get their head around the implementation piece? And I've seen some that can, and I've seen some that can't. And if you can't, it makes it a lot more difficult unless you go to one of those few studios out there where they have they have people that just are dedicated to hooking sounds up in the game. And some people do that, but a lot of studios don't. It, it has a, to me, it strikes an image of an octopus in terms of the audio elements involved in gaming. Yeah, and you've got to be, you've got to be a person who can be, there's a certain jack of all trades element to it. I mean, you know, we'll, I'll pop open Maya and edit animation files to attach sounds to animations. You know, you have to be, unafraid of getting in and tinkering with things and working with things that are a little outside of your outside of your sphere of knowledge, so to speak. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I code a little bit. I work in level editors. I've opened modeling tools. It's, you know, I'm not an expert in those things. I'm not as good as an animator, but I can go in there and hook up some animation sounds. And so you, in a salaried position doing audio, I wonder if you have the same... You know, I always talk about the gear lust temptations and the and the and the flaws in that, or the or the problems with that in terms of sabotaging maybe a, a studio owner who's trying to build a business. But is in your position, you're actually being paid a salary that you can actually turn around and do you buy gear to use in your work, or do you have the company buy you the gear that you need? Hmm, that's a tricky question for me. Um, Generally, the company buys the stuff. Uh, however, I have my own home studio that I work out of, so I buy my own stuff for that because I like, I like the idea that you know, God forbid I ever leave Activision or they cut me or whatever. I have my own set of microphones. I have my own studio. I can go do whatever I want if I want to get freelance work. I can do that. Um, most of us, I would say, have a home studio and a home rig of some sort. It's just kind of good practice to have that to fall back on and work on stuff outside of work and just kind of develop your skills, right? But generally speaking, when you're working in-house, the company is buying stuff for you, yeah. Um, we're all affected by gear lust. I don't think anybody escapes that <laughs> that beast. So it certainly affects us. And 
Um, I mean, I'm every year I'm drooling over new synthesizers and mics and all sorts of stuff. And I'm really, I'm pretty restrained about buying the stuff, but I'm certainly, you know, looking at it just like all of us are. <laughs> but if a need comes up for a game you're working on, I'm sure that opens the gateway to just say, by all means, I need it for the game. Yeah, um, that's where... That's where having somebody with control of the purse strings who's, who understands audio and is reasonable can say, well, do we really need this or not? And Are you know, we talking I'm, about your wife? Not, no, no, no. I was, <laughs> <laughs> well, at home, yes. Uh, as far as my home studio is concerned, yes. At work, you know, when I was the director of the department, that was my job. Now we've got a new guy who has that job as well. And he okay, also has okay. his head on straight about that. So usually in most departments, there's an audio director through whom these purchases, purchase requests go, and it's that person's job to say, is this reasonable or not? Um, yes, with the home studio, I have that I have that discussion of, yes, dear. I Actually, I she gave me a really evil look a couple of weeks ago because I was saying, you know, I've got this awesome Neumann 5.1 set up. I think I want to set it up for Atmos at some point in the future. And she was like, how many more speakers is that? Like six more? She knows enough about it to be like, it's like speakers in the ceiling. No. <laughs> That's going to be a fun discussion. I'm going to have to do it at some point because games are moving towards that. But that's going to be a fun discussion when that happens. Yeah. Well, now there's, unlike music, where it's hard to sell records, really. Yeah. Uh, it's not hard to sell games, is it? Uh, it is at the, at the smaller budget scale, end of the scale. You know, people that are making independent games, it's very hard to break through that crowd and sell. You know, at the, at the high budget end of the spectrum, it's not as hard, although there are a lot of games that still don't break even. Um, but the big guys like Battlefront and Call of Duty and things like that do. So it's it's weird. We've gone through a lot of what... We've gone through a phase kind of like the film industry has where the middle ground has kind of fallen out of the industry. So there's the big, huge budget games that tend to sell well and mostly make their money back, although some of them fail. And then there's a lot of independent games at the bottom of the scale, and they're, it's a crapshoot. You never know what's going to succeed and what's not. Because so. it's, I'd say it's, it's probably easier to make a record at a lower budget than it is to make a game at a lower budget. It's uh, on, yeah. I mean, and in terms of just comparing apples to oranges, what about... In your opinion, is it on par with doing a, uh, an independent uh, film? I can't say for sure because I haven't worked on any films. I have a lot of friends that have, and I would say it's similar, but with, you know, an independent film versus an independent game is similar. However, the independent games tend to take a lot longer. Um, it seems like a lot of independent games can take between two to four years to make versus an independent film. It seems like they crank those out in six to 12 months, usually, at least the ones that I have some awareness of. So it's, it's, a longer, it's a longer development cycle, although, you know, part of that is that often independent developers don't have as many people involved. So, you know, you get a, two or three people that are doing everything versus on an independent film, you can get more of a crew together. So I'm sure that's part of it. Mark Kilborn here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's time to take a sponsor break with our friends from Audio-Technica for a second. And I want to tell you about this aspect of the Audio-Technica website that I didn't realize, and I'm really happy that I now know. At audio-technica.com, under headphone accessories, they have all kinds of replacement parts, replacement cables, essentially, for all of your headphone needs. So specifically for many of us, the M-series headphones, the coily cable or the straight cable, they come in black and white. So if you happen to lose the cable, one of the cables, you can go directly to the Audio-Technica website and actually buy it. So let's see here. So if I lost my coily cable, here it is. 
and I can buy it directly off of the website. I can actually buy it right there. It's There's an add to cart button and they do shipping to all 50 US states. Not sure how that works in Europe or the rest of the world. I'm sorry, my friends, I don't know that information, but uh, anyhow, yeah. So if you get stuck in a bind there and you need those cables fast and it's uh, crunch time, so you can go over there. They also have, of course, replacement ear pads for the M series and all kinds of extra stuff. They actually sell a headphone hanger. This is kind of cool. Yeah, the HP H300 headphone hanger. That's cool. I like that. Ooh, this is super cool. They have the ATPHA100. This is a portable headphone amplifier. And of course, the, you know, the, the overview says here, you don't have to settle for wimpy, muddy sound just because you're on the go. And essentially what this is, is it can take in an analog or a digital source up to DSD resolution, and it has a USB port, so you can hook it up directly to your computer. Wow, this is really cool. Yeah, wow, I like this. Anyhow, yeah, it's uh, got a rechargeable lithium battery inside of it, and it lasts for 14 hours. And yeah, analog digital sources, good headphone amplifier. Ooh, I might have to check that out. Anyhow, that's on the uh, audio-technica.com website. You can buy it right there, add it to your cart. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Good stuff there on the Audio Technica website. So be sure and check it out. All right, let's get back into it with Mr. Mark Kilborn here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So let's talk a little bit about family. The work-life balance thing, I'm sure you're not immune to it. No. Um, and I'm sure that when these deadlines approach and it's crunch time, then, I mean, you're being, you're being paid a salary, so yeah. you're not being paid hourly. Nope. So how do you, how do you square that off at home? Uh, well, it's part of why I work from home now, <laughs> um, which I'm very thankful I was able to set up. It's, it's rough, man. It is a rough, it's a rough job to have and have a family. And I've got, you know, I've mentioned to you before, I've got one-year-old twins. I've got a six-year-old son, um, and she's not in the house, but I've got a 23-year-old stepdaughter, my wife's daughter from a previous marriage who's awesome, but it's not as big a deal because she's out of the house, but it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know people at studios on the West Coast, and part of the reason I'm not on the West Coast is cost of living is high, which means they tend to have to live further from work. And I know people who go into work on Monday morning during crunch periods, and they don't come home till Friday evening. And they they sleep at work all week, and they go home and see their families on the weekends, and that's that sucks. You know, the way I handle it is by staying away from the West Coast. I started working from home. My commute was 10 minutes. And where I, did, would, I forget where you live. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Yeah, and I'm not from there at all. My whole life has been Texas and Southern California. I just found this job up there and went, which is really strange. Um, Where are you originally from? Texas and California. My, I was born in Southern California. My parents divorced when I was a baby. Uh-huh. And I spent my whole childhood bouncing between Texas and Southern California. Where in Texas? Uh, Dallas area. Okay. I actually spent, I even spent half of my school years with my mother and then switched over at fifth grade. So I really am kind of from both states. Okay. Um but yeah, I moved up there for this job. That's and good. You have dual citizenship between California. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's part of the way I deal with it is not living on the West Coast, being in a place where my commute was short, and now obviously my commute's non-existent because I work from home. Going home as often as I could, even when I was still working in the building, I would come home every night for dinner, almost every night for dinner, have dinner, put my son to bed, read him a book, go back to the office, work more. Um, now it's the same thing. I just come down from the studio at dinner time, help put the kids to bed, 
go back up at about eight o'clock at night and work until one or two a.m. Get up the next morning and do it again. Wow, it's the good thing is is you're not sitting in a car. <clears throat> yeah, for that commute, and you are close if there's an emergency. You are close if your wife needs extra help. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to come to the West Coast and be closer to other audio people. And I've got a lot of friends out here. I would love to come out here, but I just am not willing to give that up. You know, that's why I haven't done it. I don't blame you, man. I mean, I think that cost of living thing is key. I mean, Wisconsin compared to California. Yeah, I mean, I live no, in a... There's no competition. No, it's it's nuts. And I every time people say, hey, you should move out to California and come work out here. I'm like, I bought a 3,000 square foot house for $270,000. Can you give me that? No. No. <laughs> so... I've got a yard for my dogs, and I get to put my kids to bed every night, and it's great. I'm, it, it, it but you really have hard. to deal with my arch enemy, snow. Yes, I, I, I'm with you. It's my <laughs> arch enemy, too. And, and again, working from home has helped with that. I, I go up to the office for meetings one day a week. Other than that, I stay in as much as possible. What, sorry, where is the office? Uh, the office is about five minutes from my oh, house. It's really wow. close. Okay, not um, bad. So, yeah, other than that, I work from home and I see the snow out the window and I laugh at everybody that has to drive in it because I hate the snow. Is that hard for communication or do you, is there, you know, Skype chats or video chats? that Video occur? chat, uh, Skype, I am phone. I have, a, I have a desk phone. We have an internet phone. We have a network phone system. So I have a desk phone at my desk. People can just call me. Um, so that helps. And then if there's some sort of work emergency, I can get in the car and drive up to the office and I'm there really quickly. Um, so that helps. Or take your snowmobile out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hike across the Arctic Hike, tundra yeah. to the office. Cross-country um, ski there. Yeah, it's, it is rough, the winter thing. I don't like it. Um, there's also a... Growing up in Texas and California, I'm a little spoiled on food. The food in Wisconsin is pretty terrible. <laughs> I mean, I kind of miss that, and I miss, I miss living in a big city. We drive down to Chicago every couple of months and spend a weekend there and that helps uh, my sister lives there so we get out and see her and do stuff down there huh well now you like the rest of us spend your time sitting in behind a computer you're also plagued with some snow so the exercise factor the walking around factor is probably you know a challenge yep I've got a treadmill in the basement in front of a big screen TV. I can get out and walk on the treadmill. Okay. Uh, seriously, yeah. I, I, I hate the lack of walking around. Um, I obviously need to lose a bit of weight, so that helps with that. Because, yeah, you do. I do get a little stir crazy. Um, and then when the weather's nice, I go out and walk outside. And I, I, I jokingly take smoke breaks. I don't smoke, but I have to go outside and get some sun and some air every get once in a while. Get some fresh air, right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I... I hate being stuck in an audio cave. As much as I love my job, I hate being stuck in a windowless room. It drives me nuts. And my yeah. my studio at home now has a window, which you know it's not a it's not a perfectly treated room. It's an it's a bedroom with a bunch of absorbers and a base traps and stuff in it. But you know I, I put up with it because I've got sunlight. It's wonderful. It's a worthy sacrifice for me. Um, but that that does have the advantages. You know, with you working at home, you're not always going out to eat. Yeah. I mean, I know that when I had my studio uh, not too far from where we're at here in San Francisco, I remember in the opening days of that studio, we used to go out to lunch like every day. Yeah. And that adds up, man. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, I I eat downstairs in the kitchen. Uh, I go out. I do make a point of getting out to lunch once a week with the rest of the audio team. We go have, we go 
eat. We usually go to this place that has great chicken wings. We go eat chicken and talk about audio crap for an hour or so. And that's great because I do think, feel like it's important to have that time with them. But yeah, I try to eat out a hell of a lot less. It's, it's better for the budget for sure. In terms of, you know, I think we talk about health, you know, uh, mental health, uh, which can be affected by economic stress, which can be uh, affected by, you know, uh, a number of things. It probably really does help for you to be at home. That's a level yeah. of stress that you can just like go, eh, I don't have to worry about that. It, yeah, it reduces stress of being, you know, of being in a building with, like I said, no windows and having to go outside and all that stuff. And it also, it, it reduces the work-life balance stress too. You know, my, my wife, I think is a lot happier that I'm at home. And even though I'm up in the studio all day on the rare occasion, happens once every week or two where she's like, Hey, I really need help for 20 minutes. I can run downstairs and help her. And it doesn't just really disrupt my work at all. I can just make up the 20 minutes after I'm done. Right. So yeah, it reduces stress on a lot of fronts. It's a much better setup. And I'm really hoping that our industry in general will, will move more towards this. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for a lot of people. I don't think, I don't think everybody necessarily needs to be under the same roof at all times. And especially when a lot of these studios are located in super expensive places it's it's harder on everybody right i mean there are studios i love and they're like double fine where camden works as an example they're downtown san francisco I mean, who can afford to live comfortably working there as much as i love that studio and i love their games it's like that's that's hard on everybody who works there that has a direct effect on everything associated with the business it absolutely does that so. overhead is is tremendous i'm sure for anybody on the west coast yeah and i've and i've certainly noticed you know with raven which is the the office where i work in madison you know regardless of whether i'm in the building or at home i've noticed that they there are a lot more people there that have wives and children compared to studios where i know people out here it seems like like there's a lot more single people because it's simply easier to have a family in a place where you or can afford to house them do people who want a family do you think that that's harder to do if you're in, in a more stressful environment like that yeah definitely it's it's hard to have time for it it's hard to spend enough time with them or I meeting mean, people yeah yeah it's even it's even harder on that front so yeah i definitely think it's it's harder to be a game developer and have a family and or want to start a family if you're living in a place like San Francisco or Southern California, it's easier in Washington to some degree because it's a little bit cheaper up there. But I know it's still very expensive. Seattle's a big hub for game development. Austin is still one to some degree, and it's easier there, even though Austin itself is crazy expensive. As soon as you get outside of the city, the prices just fall off a cliff and housing gets reasonable. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of wish more developers would move inland a bit to places like that where cost of living is more reasonable. How I think it would critical, be easier on everyone. How critical is it for you to be close to the office? Like, could you do a, do this job remotely from another city entirely? I could, but I think it's, I think it's helpful to be nearby because, you know, it's, it's hard to replace face-to-face -face communication and it's hard to, it's hard to troubleshoot something over the phone, or I guess it's not hard to troubleshoot something over the phone. It's easier to troubleshoot something when you and a guy are sitting there looking at a screen together, solving it, right? So I think there's definitely value in having access to the building. But I could do it remotely. I think I could. And, I'm a, and I know of a few people that do. There are 
Uh, there are a handful of people in various roles within Activision that work like this, that are from home. And some of them are often places like Maine or, you know, way Northern California. There's a guy there. There's a guy in Utah. Um, there are some people that are kind of scattered out and they get their jobs done pretty well. So it can be done, but I think it's easier being near a building, which is why I haven't, I haven't tried to move away from Madison. Cause it's very convenient that I can walk into the office quickly and deal with something and then go back to my desk. That's, you know, five minutes drive away. Do you think that there's age ageism in the gaming industry? Because I know that there's a little bit of that in the tech industry. Does that exist in the gaming world? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's the, there's the joke that we're looking to hire somebody age 20 to 25 with 20 years experience and no family. Um, <laughs> excuse me. So, yeah, ageism is a problem. There, again, it's, it's hard to have a family and live in places like this where the cost of living is high. A lot of the game companies know that. Also, more more experienced developers that are older tend to be more expensive because you know they've been working longer. They expect a bigger salary. If they have families, they need to take care of them. So yeah, there's a certain degree of that that goes on, and a lot of it, in my opinion, is kind of short-sighted. You know, as a as a developer, it's kind of easy to look at it and say, well, I could hire this one guy for X amount, or I could hire these two students for Y and Y, and it's a lot cheaper. But what what people who look at it that way are missing out on is the fact that the experienced developer is not only going to get the work done faster, their work is going to be more resilient. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're programming, it's you can you can build a system that does something. But if you want to build it that does something in such a way that's not going to break under stressful conditions when there's too much going on in the game or whatever, there's a certain amount of experience that goes into building systems that are that are resilient to stress of frame rate and you know number of guys running around on the screen, whatever. So when you have a more experienced developer, there's a coder I work with named Steve, who's an awesome guy who's been making games professionally since I was like four years old. You know, that guy can solve a problem instantly. And I'm sure he's more expensive than the college student that just started at our office. But, you know, when you give him a problem, he fixes it and it's done. And you don't have to revisit it. And that's it. So there's a tremendous value in having these more experienced employees. I do think a lot of a lot of game companies kind of overlook that and think, well, we'll just if we if they focus on the number of butts and seats and how cheaply they can get them, they miss out on what experience brings to the table. Right. Do you think that it's important for the people that they hire in audio, is it critical that they play games themselves? Definitely. Um, you don't have to be, I mean, you don't have to be a crazy or a hardcore gamer in the sense that you have to be playing games constantly, but I do think there's a lot of value in having somebody who plays other games, who knows what the market is like. You know, we learn a lot by dissecting other people's games. Every time a new Battlefront game comes out or Battlefield game comes out, we play it and we dissect it and we learn everything we can. And you you get ideas that you bring to your own work. So there's definitely value in that sense. The other sense is, you know, we're developing games, everybody that we interact with in the other departments, including the design department, the art department, the animation department, they all play games. So there's a, there's a certain language you, that develops from that where people will say, hey, we want to do this thing. And it's just like the scene in Half-Life where such and such happened, which I'm sure, which is kind of like the game development of equip, equivalent of, hey, give me the, the snare drum used on that Zeppelin record or something. You know what I mean? So you need to have that, that frame of reference where when people start referring to other games and talking about what was done and other stuff, you know what it is, or you can quickly go check it out and at least know what they're talking about, right? Um, I do know some sound people that that succeed despite not being super into games, but I think it, it's helpful. It's very helpful, yeah. 
And back just to the discussion of, of ageism, it would seem, well, I'll just, you know, relay my own personal experience of when I go, and I don't know if anybody else is, I'm sure other people have encountered this. If you go to a, a, a big box um, hardware store, if you go to a Lowe's or you go to a Home Depot, if I have a problem that I can't figure out, I always seek out the oldest person there. Absolutely. Because I know they're going to know. And I know that I'm not going to get a distracted employee who's not focused on the problem and, and who causes me to have to go back two or three times yep. just to solve the problem. I so agree I can see that value in older individuals working in any, well, yeah, any industry. Absolutely. Because I think in the gaming industry, if you have older individuals, they have a sense of history. They have a sense of what's not worked in the past, the challenges of the past, and it puts everything into perspective. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and again, that's why I feel like a lot of game companies are short-sighted for not acknowledging that. And I feel like the, the work-life balance thing is a huge problem for us. I, it's been... I think maybe four years since I saw numbers on it, but we have a uh, we have an organization called the International Game Developers Association that tracks stats, you know, about worker happiness in our industry. And I think it was roughly four years ago I last looked at the numbers, but the average churn rate for our industry was ten years. So on average, people get sick of it and leave the game industry after ten years because of quality of life issues. And you know, that's something we need to fix if we want to keep those more experienced developers around. And, you know, in my 12 or 13 years of doing this, I got to tell you, it's the older developers tend to be the better ones <laughs> just because of more experience, right? And I, and it's the same thing. If I have a problem that I need some coder to help me with or some animator to help me with, I kind of do the same thing you do at Lowe's. It's, I'm going to go to the guy who really knows what the hell they're doing because they've been doing it longer than I've been alive. And the other advantage too is, is that Older workers generally either have grown kids or at the worst, their kids are in college or at the end of their yep. college careers and they're adults. And so their focus is really just to keep, you know, money coming in for their older years. It's it's an interesting thing just, yes. you know, because age, age plays a huge role in a lot of different industries and it, and it's affected in, it, it's it's dealt with in different ways in different industries. And speaking of age, let's talk about retirement for a second. Sure. Are you saving for retirement? Absolutely, yes. And is that based on uh, a company 401k or your own actions? Uh, my own actions. I actually, I, I probably should sign up for my company's 401k. I haven't done that. But uh, we, uh, my wife and I have set, it up, set up an automated kind of cash flow payment system and savings. So everything is fully automated. My check deposits into an account you know, a portion of that gets transferred to another account that we can actually spend. A portion of that gets transferred into retirement fund. Uh, a portion of that auto pays all of our bills. It's kind of nice. I don't even think about bills generally. It just kind of automatically happens. I read this great book years ago called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. I haven't. Uh, I, I'm going to butcher his name. Uh, Ramit Seti, I think is his name. Yeah. I can give you the link if you want to put it on show notes and, and find and it interesting. I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Yeah, and he... He describes this idea of automating automating your money management so that you don't have to think about it. And by taking yourself out of the equation, you kind of you just automatically start saving and investing and stuff and you don't have to you don't screw it up by looking at it. Ramit Ramit Sethi? Yeah. Is that 
That sounds right. Yeah, like okay. I said, I think I'm gonna. I thought I butchered his name, but that's the book. But okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely. I will the book. teach you to be rich. Okay, so I'll put that in the show notes on the Working Class Audio website for those who want to check that book out. Yeah, and I and I mean I've heard other people on your show say this. I do have a I do have a certain investment strategy with gear in terms of I try to buy higher quality stuff and I try to buy it at the best price possible or used. And you know if if we ever hit extremely hard times, I'll start liquidating my mic locker and things like that, which I'm sure will help. But yes, we absolutely are saving for retirement and I don't want to leave my family hanging on that. So so we talked about health, we talked about family, and we talked about finance. Can I quickly say on finance, don't yeah. go into debt for gear. <laughs> Please, if you're listening, don't go into debt for gear. Yeah. I just I want to I want to beat that into the heads of every student I ever talk to. Don't go into debt for gear. It's such a huge deal. Are you speaking from experience? Oh yeah, yeah. I, well, when I first got started, I took on a little bit of debt. I am debt free now. I will not buy anything unless I have cash to pay for it. It's a, an evil trap. Don't go into debt for year ever. God, it certainly it. is, man. I just that's that's m- my main mission right now is to finish up the debt and be done with it. I'm almost yes. there. You will be so happy when you get there and I will congratulate you <laughs> when it happens. Cause it's, I think I'm going to throw a, a party and put it all on a credit card. It's a wonderful <laughs> feeling. <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling to get out from under that rock, man. It's, it's huge. It happened a couple of years ago for us and it's awesome. And we talked about that, about just mental health, how economic uh, challenges can really affect mental health. And really, uh, I think when you're, when, just a little bit of a rant here. I think when you're challenged in those areas, it affects your decision making. Whereas if you're debt free, you have a happy, happy home life, whatever that home life is, however it's structured, as long as that's happy, it's like you can make smarter decisions about your audio world and your business without as much duress as yep. you would if you're challenged in those areas. Absolutely. And I, I also, another thing I really believe in that's related to that is I believe in the idea of having debt to myself. So everything I've purchased, I've tracked and I keep track of how much money my system has made me. And so I'm kind of trying to pay myself off in a way, which I know sounds weird. Wow. Um, that is a level of detail that I, <laughs> I, I'd have to really focus this, on. I, I think this comes from, again, working in, in games and having to plot everything out in Excel just because I'm in I should have brought my laptop with me. I've got spreadsheets of every single thing I've ever purchased every down to every cable in my studio is documented with the price and everything. And, and I'm tracking like, when do have I paid all this stuff off to myself, even though I didn't purchase it on, you know, I didn't take on debt to buy it. I'm kind of keeping track of how much money has it made me. Cause I would like it to break even so that I can get into the black in that sense. So I can say that my gear made me more money than I spent on it. Absolutely. And as we kind of wrap up, do you proactively network with other people? Definitely. Networking is a huge, huge deal in games. Um, it's, I mean, just about every job I've ever gotten has been through knowing somebody. So I network a lot. And, you know, networking is, it's a weird thing. I'm not, I'm not the greatest at social interaction. My wife is the social butterfly. I tend to be the quiet one, even though I'm just babbling endlessly here. You're in your element here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking audio stuff. Um, <laughs> But so my big thing on networking is don't network to get work, network to make friends. Ah. And the reason I say that is because, you know, audio people tend to be some of the nicest people uh, in the world. My, I've got my, my best friend in the world now, a guy I'd call if I ever killed somebody. I'm not going to kill somebody, but if I had to hide a body, I would call him. <laughs> he's an audio guy and he's a guy I met a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, I've made some of my best friends in life through audio and... If you network to get work, 
people can sense that and they know that you're interacting with them because you're hoping to get something out of them. If you network to make friends, that's when real connections happen. You'll make friends. And if you do that, the work eventually comes anyway. So I usually tell people network to make friends, don't network just to get work. And the other big thing is find ways to give back to the community. And, you know, I mean, if you want to be selfish about it, you can say, well, if you give back to the community, eventually people will start giving back to you. But, you know, if you just give back to people and be kind, it, A, it, it feels great. It's a nice thing to do. And, you know, and I, I do what I can on that front. And a lot of us in game audio do. We share things that we learn or we show off tools or we should teach people things that we have learned or things that we're doing or whatever. But it's just, it's a good way if you can provide some value to the community that kind of builds a sense of worth in you among other people. And that'll help in that effort as well. But yes, networking is huge, but I think taking a generosity kind of approach to it is the best way to go. Give without expecting anything back. Then you will probably get back in the end anyway. That's just generally how it works. At least it's been my experience in game audio. I don't know if it's the same in music, but you tell me. I guess it depends on the personality. Okay. But I love what you're saying about networking to be friends. I think Mike Wells in his interview talked about a very similar approach. If people want want you and appreciate your talents, they know how to find you. Yeah. And if they have a good sense of you as a person, they're more likely to want to hire you. I agree completely. Because they know that they can reach out and that you're, you know, trustworthy and you're a good hang and whatever. So. Absolutely. Well, Mark, this has been great to talk to you uh, here in this Starbucks yeah. with Celine Dion playing behind us. <laughs> yeah, it's a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for meeting me. Thank you. And quickly, I'm sorry to gush here, but thank you for doing this podcast. I When I first communicated with you was late late 2015 when my kids were just born. They were born premature. They were going to nick you for a couple of months. I was staying near the hospital with them. I listened, I had just discovered Working Class Audio around the time, and I listened to almost every podcast you had recorded up to that point. And that gave me something to focus on and do while I was dealing with that. So thank you for doing this oh, podcast. Man. It's my pleasure. It was a huge sanity saver while I was stuck there waiting for my kids to get out of the hospital. So wow. thank you. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's quite the compliment. Well, so there it is. Uh, Mark Hilborn here in San Francisco at the Game Developers Conference. We'll chat with you later, Mark. All right. Thank you. Okay. Mark Kilborn here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A little bit of a noisy environment there, but I think we still had a good chat. But that's it. So uh, on to the next show, right? So here we go. We got to thank everybody. Got to thank all my crew. We got to thank Cliff Truesdell. We got to thank Chuck Smith. And we got to thank Cole Williams. And we got to thank our sponsors Lawton Audio, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and GearSluts.com. And I appreciate the time you take to listen. So, of course, as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.